Welcome to episode 84 of the Get Cyber Resilient Show. I'm Dan McDermott and I'll be your host for today. As you may notice, today is a little different. We're currently streaming live on LinkedIn, as well as recording to release the episode on the usual podcast platforms later. Also, this episode is different as rather than just focusing on the hottest topics in cybersecurity over the past fortnight, we'll take a look back over the cyber events and challenges that shaped the year, review some of the insights that our incredible guests have brought to the show in 2021, discuss how to be cyber resilient across the holiday season, and peer into the crystal ball to make some predictions on what the new year will bring us. One thing that is the same is that I'm joined by our resident cybersecurity experts, Bradley Singh and Garrett O'Hara. To say it's been a big year in cybersecurity would be an understatement. Let's kick off by reviewing the hottest topic of the year, ransomware. This year saw an explosion of high-profile ransomware attacks across all industries, and we've seen governments respond by joining together to fight back against the threat. Brad, how significant has the rise in ransomware been in 2021? Okay, thanks for having me, Dan, and hello to all our listeners slash viewers there on uh, LinkedIn Live or, or whatever the, the platform's called. It's, it's, it's just lovely that you could all join us at the end of the year. Um, I felt like last year was almost the year of ransomware, but I think the reality is 2021 was absolutely ridiculous in terms of volume of breaches, high-value breaches. And I think we've all still got the, the stories of Colonial Pipeline kind of stuck in our head. I think, if anything, it's definitely been a crazy year, and I look forward to reviewing it with you today. The funny one, though, ransomware. We, you know, we've we've talked about this uh, this problem, and it's been on kind of LinkedIn actually in, in sort of side um, chats that you have with the sort of cybersecurity professionals. It's come up a few times, and I've been thinking about it a lot in in terms of the FBI data that says it's one sixty fourth the problem of BEC, and I think it's like flying a plane versus driving a car that you know ransomware and it hits it hits really bad, and it's the kind of thing that makes the news all the time because it it's going to close the doors of a business potentially. Um, whereas BEC, the money goes out the door, but generally, you know, there's a little bit of shame and feel a bit silly, but, you know, ultimately everything keeps going. Um, so it, it sort of feels like from a risk perspective, you know, people feel fine getting in a car, even though it's much more likely that you're going to have an accident and, and bad things are going to happen versus getting in a, an airplane. Um, if it feels like that, but I mean, it, talk about a talk about a tsunami, it feels like every single day, not feels like it is, every single day you open the, the news, there's there's another brand, another big name that's been popped. And I also think Brad mentioned the fact of like Colonial Pipeline as being maybe the highest profile, but we've seen lots of attacks around critical infrastructure across not only utilities, but things like healthcare. And I think that one of the takes that we've seen throughout this year as well is, is that the fact that ransomware not only impacts the organisation that's been targeted and, and can have an impact on their finances and their well-being and their staff, but also has that ripple effect more widely across the community, um, reaching more than just the, the originally targeted organisation. So, Gar, how do you sort of see that playing out as we sort of, you know, continue to battle with this, like, you know, like you say, this tsunami on every front? Yeah, so I think the ripple actually goes both ways, as you've described it, Dan. So certainly kind of downstream to the, the smaller organizations, but it goes the other way too. Um, and I'm actually thinking back now to uh, Dmitry Alperovich when he was on and, and him as his, as the um, director of Silverado, you know, the policy kind of uh, organization over in, in Washington. And one of the things he spoke about at length was we have a lot of those sort of smaller organizations providing services into critical national infrastructure. And at some point we're going to have to, you know, have an adult conversation around how do we make sure that they are secure? Is it some sort of a certification 
yet another certification um, or, you know, external security audit to make sure that if you're the, the people providing some service into a water supply system or energy grid or healthcare, that your systems are protected and are up to, to scratch. And the, the thing that came up and I sort of pushed back on was, does that then eliminate many of the SMEs or smaller organizations from the ability to do business with those larger kind of, you know, federal programs or state programs when it comes to CNI? Um, and he made what I suppose is the, the correct kind of come back to that, which is, well, maybe, but, you know, like if it's going to be the water supply gets cut off or somebody dies, then, you know, that that's potentially what we have to actually do. Um, so to your point, Dan, like it goes both ways. We saw that with even the commercial uh, pops where, you know, um, meat uh, production was impacted and uh, mm. shipping was put on hold. You know, jobs are actually affected. But then it goes the other way too. So, you know, that it comes back to the, you know, the thing we always talk about, the digital interconnectedness. Everything is connected to everything digitally. And um, to steal Bruce Schneier's quote, which I do all the time, you know, we're, we're forced to trust everything and we can't trust anything. Um, I'm probably butchering the quote, but, you know, that's the spirit of it. <laughs> and I think you touched on there, I think, with Dimitri and the work at Silverado, but we've seen it around the world where governments are taking, having a response to this, right? And I think it is, like you say, well, it may be 165th the size of the monetary problem of, uh, of BEC, it is the thing that's gaining everybody's attention. Um, we've seen it locally um, through the federal government's ransomware action plan and what's happening there. Um, obviously, Biden and in the US are doing things, particularly off the back of Colonial Pipeline and what they were looking at. And obviously, in the UK for a long time, they've been looking at this and, and how they can actually respond as well. What can you tell us about sort of the, the government responses and, and where is that at? And what will that mean for us as we sort of head into 2022? Um, well, to, to, to start with, there is a government response, and I think that's the thing we're probably all celebrating from the sidelines is that, um, and, and, you know, that's probably a little bit unkind. I mean, certainly we've been looking at this stuff, but, um, you know, I'd say since um, uh, Scott Morrison stood on the podium and said we're under sustained attack, it feels like there's a shift in the zeitgeist, um, and we're seeing... Um, you know, Orcus, uh, the ransomware task force, discussions around mandatory ransomware reporting. Um, there's a lot of energy behind what um, I think it was Tim Watts originally described as the retail politics of what has become the retail politics of cybersecurity. Um, and that feels like the biggest shift stuff is actually happening. Um, that 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 to me is probably the biggest thing. Like we're, we're seeing the task force set up. We're seeing both kind of uh, collaboration at a, a sort of national level, but then also the international level um, for broader takedowns of, you know, and we, I think we're going to maybe talk about this a little bit later, but that that's the important thing is the, the kind of ships are raising in, in multiple countries and, and then starting to kind of work together. So um, not that I for a second think that ransomware is going to go away. Um, well, look, I know you know we saw how innovative they are. We we spoke about this on one of the news episodes where, from an encryption perspective, if you guys remember, they they sort of tweaked it so they were only encrypting like half of the files and being able to then get across systems much more quickly. So, um, one of the things I'm sort of thinking about more and more these days is that if you look at sort of Silicon Valley and tech in general how it just takes one sort of delivery service to do well or one gig transport service to do well and all of a sudden you've got 50 of them like why would why would cybercrime be any different than that and um given the talent and technology like that's all we're seeing we're just seeing you know silicon valley you know innovation applied to cybercrime and i think that's going to continue 
Yeah, and I think it has raised, I guess, one of the questions that sort of remains almost, well, I think there's an answer, but almost unanswered right throughout the year. And and Brad, be interested in your thoughts on the notion of, of if a company does get attacked, what is the response? Do you pay or not to pay the ransom? I think we, we can't keep feeding the ecosystem. Like it's not a sustainable in the long run, unless insurance is willing to cover it. And I think anyone here pays for cyber insurance or is you know, lucky enough to have to be involved in the, that discussion. Um, as soon as the insurers aren't covering it, then it starts to pose the risk that who's willing to take on the risk. And it seems like no one is. A guy made a really good point there early in terms of the shift towards the mindset, I think, of, of the country, of, of allies and stuff as well. Um, I think Scott Morrison even said the phrase resilient or cyber resilient almost. I remember that seeing that on TV and I was like, that's pretty cool. Um, but I think for organisations, unless we have strong guidelines in terms of to pay or not to pay, it's, it's a really hard decision. And I remember I've, I've spoken to quite a few critical infrastructure providers, like they might provide water or electricity. And I believe the advice that they've sought from the government has said, technically it could be illegal to pay because the money could be going to a terrorist group or a criminal organisation However, if they were to pay because it were to save a life, as an example, and maybe somebody needs water, I think to Gar's point earlier, um, then technically it's okay. And again, if we think back to the colonial pipeline one, they did pay and then they went back after them. So maybe that, you know, that was almost like a, a warning being like, okay, <clears throat> you've had you've had free reign up until now, but we're going to take this seriously. We're going to try and hunt you down. You know, if you're going to pay the full extent of the law. But also we know how cybersecurity works and we know that you can be anywhere in the world. So when you're sitting behind a VPN or hiding your IP address, yeah, a lot of thoughts on that one. But I think, yeah, my, my opinion would be that if, if you can avoid paying, don't pay and do good backups. I think we're in a world where you need to make sure you back up. It's a, a super important point though, Brad, because um, I think there's a lot around this where if you do the basics well, it's not that you're going to be immune to, to ransomware, but I think you remove a lot of the leverage and the pressure points when, you know, when that horrible um, attack does happen. Um, and I also think like part of this is just good incident response, um, mm. you know, knowing what the plan will be if this stuff does happen and not making an emotional decision to pay or not to pay because, you know, you're and as you probably would be, you're freaking out in the moments and the ex goes freaking out and, you know, everyone's kind of thinking, oh, my God, what, what do we do? Let's just pay and, and hope that everything works out. Um, you really want to be sitting down in the cold, you know, calm moments, writing the plan. Um, and then when the worst thing, happen, worst thing happens, you know, execute on that plan and ideally get to a third party for advice in the moments. And that, that weirdly, you know, we, we talk about ins cyber insurance so often in terms of, Hey, we'll we'll just get the thing paid, and that's that's the point. And uh, I think they were actually part of the Connect, the Momcast Connect earlier in the year. We had the, the cyber insurance team on, and it was brilliant hearing about how they have access to people who are incredibly good at negotiating in terms of what the ransom might be, um, and being able to make the very clinical decision based on their experience with maybe an attacker, uh, their pedigree, um, or the attack type, etc but being able to make a much more rational decision on what the best course of action would be. Um, and it sort of reminds me, I'm listen, listening to an audiobook on uh, negotiating at the moment from a guy who was in the FBI, pretty, pretty cool book. Um, nice. I think it's literally called Negotiated as if your life depends on it. But um, <laughs> one of the big things I took from that is not how to negotiate, but how valuable it is to have somebody from the outside who can kind of remove the emotion and then you know execute on best practice and what's good for the outcome rather than, what, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure what I would do is just freak out and go, well, let's pay, you know, hopefully everything works out, you know. 
And Gar, I think what that reminds me of is, is probably some of the best advice I think around this that I've heard. It's it's not it's having the plan is one thing, but it's actually putting that under a stress test, actually yep. pressure testing that um, because anybody can have it written down and on a piece of paper and it seems fine um, until it happens. And then it's like, then the CEO is calling and saying, how come I can't get my email? What's going on? The CFO is saying, you know, we've got a ransom to pay this amount of money and the clock's ticking. Um, you've got media calling you to say, you know, your site's down, your brand's being impacted, what's happening? Under that scenario and that situation when you're actually in it, I think it's very different to sort of the calm notion, like you say, of actually writing the plan. And uh, one of the people that, like, that we know and that gives us advice, Nick Abrahams, around the notion of having sort of a breach coach and actually mm-hmm. like to come in and test that plan. So one thing is to write it, which, which is obviously the first step, but to actually create that scenario and put the executives under that stress in that sort of test environment to actually see how people respond because that's when you truly know you know, that you can actually hold up, do what you do, test your systems at the same time, test your communication processes. There are so many aspects, right, of when this happens, of how that needs to be coordinated and how that needs to be coordinated in a remote working world as well, right? Um, you know, so not everyone's necessarily in a boardroom. Has the attack, you know, impacted your your Zoom connection and your, from your corporate account and therefore how do you get everybody on board, like, there are so many little gotchas throughout that process. Totally agree. Um, Anthony uh, Caruana was on uh, a couple of months ago. He's from MediaWiz. And uh, we spoke at length actually about what you, what you just mentioned there, Dan, is that that plan for uh, the communications side of, of all of this. And you know, part of what they do is smoke jump into those organizations where the really bad thing has happened um, and then try and make a plan in the moment based on their experience and Anthony's big comment was, it's so much easier to build that plan before the attack happens. If you wait until the, the thing goes wrong, um, it, it just puts you in a really bad position. I keep having, you know, the the, the quote that feels like everyone's saying at the moment, um, it's Mike Tyson, you know, the everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it, it sort of feels a bit like that. And what we've also seen from research conducted is, is that, um, you know, pain doesn't necessarily mean that you'll, you actually get everything back. Um, yep. And I think the other factor that we've really seen is, is the multiple ways of extortion happening. So it was, you know, okay, you pay the ransom, you might, you know, we'll restore access in your files and you get everything back. Um, but they've already taken it. So what's stopping mm. them from then selling it for a second time on the dark web and actually still selling the data? So just because you may get operational again doesn't actually remove the risk of what's actually happened to, to your data as well. I wonder if we have the stats now, and if we, we probably don't, but and I, I don't want to suggest that there's honour among thieves or, or we should you know, be trusting ransomware providers on, on dodgy dark web forms, but... I think there is a thing to be said about reputation. I think it goes back to Gar's points in terms of understanding who you're negotiating with, who you're kind of working with. Like the reality is like I think some of these services, like they live and die on their reputation because they do give customer data back. But I think it would be very naive to think that that data wasn't backed up and they probably backed it up better than the person who got breached it. They probably backed it up, dumped it on an AWS somewhere, an S3 bucket, and it's just sitting there waiting for the future. Um, So I don't think you should pay. Don't pay. We, we, we've talked about it before, Brad, but you raise what I think is a really important point about the economics of this as a business, which is 
if the ransomware attackers never ever um, you know restore the data, no one would pay because you just know there's no point. So I, I suspect there's a really fine balance, you know, where they've employed maybe the best brains and business analysts to figure out what that sweet spot is for you know paying out ransom so that the you know the the cash cow or the golden goose keeps on laying these uh, these eggs. Yeah, I kind of put it akin to and it's probably a terrible example, but like maybe maybe a drug dealer, right? Like they're selling somebody drugs, but they obviously want their client or um, the, the person taking them to buy more, so they don't want to kill their client, but they still need the revenue. So the hackers are doing exactly the same thing to, to us, I guess. Like they they want to get money out of us, but they don't want to piss us off too much um, because yeah, otherwise they'll get no more money out of it. And I think some of the commentary we had originally around Colonial Pipeline and some of the others is. They've poked the bear, you know. We've they've gone too far, um, and then they even I think they even went out to say that we, they don't want to cause any loss of life. Like you know, they're trying to come across innocent. Yeah, they said they would moderate the uh, the, the people who are going to use their, their like PR, right? It's like, yeah, don't worry, guys, we'll be okay. Like we'll make sure they're trained, the uh, police checks and stuff. <laughs> Crazy, and there definitely is research on the fact that you know. Um, most organizations seem to get their data back and that, you know, there is that honor, but um, more than a third of the time, um, it actually isn't returned still. So they've paid the ransom and they still don't get, you know, the access key as, as well. So I think that there is, you know, and I think it is depending on the different, you know, I guess nature of the attackers as well, right? I think that's what we've seen as well is, is that um, that there is ones who are just, you know, fairly opportunistic, you know, it's a short-term financial hit, um, you know, gain for them. They so they don't really care, right? Because they may not even even do it again. So it's like they'll just maximize the payment at, at that time. Then there's the ones that are more organized, right? Um, and and becoming that way. And then we're seeing sort of the rise of things like ransomware as a service that's making it easier for people to actually access this as well. And then I guess then you're getting also a high variation of of who's deploying it, right? So the people, like you say, the people who have maybe created the ransomware as a service want that ongoing business, right? So they might, you know, have some integrity in terms of honouring, you know, what they say they're going to do once the ransom's paid. But other people who are using that service may not have that intention at all. Yeah, I mean, you're effectively giving tools or keys to, to a kingdom to do a bunch of stuff. And then ultimately, I don't think the ransomware provider or whoever it is really cares who they're selling it to. Um, and look, we've seen that from, you know, potentially state-sponsored groups over in Israel with, with you know, Pegasus and stuff and how that was used uh, in, against various countries and against journalists. Um, and you have to wonder what's the difference between that and, and some of these groups hanging out in dark web forums. And they probably chat on all the same forums anyway. But um, no, I think you're 100% right there, Dan. Yeah, I mean, you can sell a gun to somebody. Um, and that, like, let's be honest, that that's happened internationally where, you know, arms deals and trades have happened where, you know, behind the scenes, like lots of money's made and no one ever signs a contract saying, hey, we won't use these weapons against X, Y, Z. And, and you know, there's generally huge outrage when it does come to light, you know, where those deals have been done and what that actually means. Like the British government or any government in the world, I think, sorry, not to speak on them, you know, selling bombs and stuff. But yeah, 100%. Hopefully though, like I think we should see a decrease eventually. And I think that for me, I think it's cryptocurrency has been the number one factor in terms of why the ecosystem has become so profitable. Like we used to hear about people stealing iTunes gift cards, but to go down and you know, grab hundreds of thousands or $70 million worth of iTunes gift cards was pretty hard. But to receive $70 million in Bitcoin, I believe it takes just a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes. So I think 
That has been something which the government governments around the world have failed to control. China have been very harsh on it recently, which may have hurt them. But it'll be interesting to see policy around that and regulation around that, if that somehow ever affects the payment mechanisms and the ecosystem. But I also fear it won't because I think where that whole thing is in at the moment, it's still in a very evolutionary phase and we don't even know how big or how small some of that market and how normal some of that stuff is going to become in our everyday lives. So I think as long as cryptocurrency is around, unfortunately, it's going to make it an easy method or mechanism for um, these groups to, to make money, basically. And it kind of feels like the toothpaste is out of the tube on that one. Um, you know, it's a distributed ledger by definition. That's kind of like it, it is resilient. And you can make Wait. it illegal and then all you do is drive it underground. But if you're you know, a criminal organization, well, you're already underground. And, and I think there's, when you look at the, I think it's the IMF came out a couple of days ago saying they wanted to look at sort of global regulation of uh, cryptocurrencies. And because outside of cyber, it's, it's starting to have like pretty big impacts in terms of, you know, sovereign currencies and their value, like the US dollar, for example. And, you know, you could say that's potentially under threat because of crypto becoming you know, maybe a new global standard or some other digital currency. Um, strange days ahead. Indeed. So let's broaden the conversation a little bit beyond ransomware, which obviously has been such a hot topic. But we've also seen that 2021 was a bit of a perfect storm for cybercrime. Um, we saw the pandemic continue to, to ravage in terms of having lockdowns and a distracted public and workforce. And um, we've had high profile zero day attacks and very high profile vendor attacks such as SolarWinds. And just, uh, just last week, the Log4Shell critical vulnerability on Apache. So how have these factors impacted cybersecurity in the past year, Brad? I like log for sure, and I say I like it because I think it's a good example of kind of all the things we've been talking about over the past year or two on the show coming coming to kind of together, right? Um, interestingly enough, log for shell um, so what it is, it's I believe it's a Java-based exploit, which is kind of a core fundamental in Java, which allows you to basically do coding around logging. So if you think about any system out there which may use Java, a lot of web applications, um, backend servers have used Java for years just because it's so lightweight. Uh, interestingly enough, in, in Log4Me, though, it was um, Minecraft. So uh, Minecraft, which was originally a Java-based game, um, I guess it was players or hackers, I'm not too sure, they were using Log4Shell to send test messages to each other or basically send messages to each other in a video game. But since it was discovered in Minecraft, it's now rapidly being exploded over the web onto various different other platforms. I think it's interesting if you think about also the psyche or the profile of the, the people and where these hacks are coming from, because I don't know, I guess they're a bunch of people sitting inside playing video games and hacking at nighttime. It only makes sense that they'd probably do the same kind of in their personal lives as well. Um, and then on the point of um, around kind of platforms and vendor, you made an interesting point earlier around saying that smaller providers, you know, they need to be accountable to a certain degree before they potentially work with that critical infrastructure, et cetera. But for a customer or for a buyer, or for a board, I'm looking at the news, I'm hearing Amazon getting popped, I'm hearing Twitch getting popped, I'm hearing Microsoft, like every big platform around the world is getting popped right now. So do you actually trust the big ones who are meant to be very secure or do you go maybe with the more bespoke ones, which again, then maybe not have the same maturity. So I think for a, for a buyer, a consumer or anybody listening to this show, it's it's very hard to figure out where to put your eggs, like what basket. And the only thing I can think of is you want to try and diversify your risk to a degree, um, but probably you know, probably don't want to maintain too many vendors as well because it just becomes far too difficult to manage. It points to, for me, this is an example of um, secure by, by design and how that impacts the kind of the way development is done these days where 
Um, you know, when, when people think of development, they often think of somebody sitting down and writing an entire thing themselves, where actually what you're often doing is writing code to call something that somebody else has already built because it, perf- it you know, in theory, does a job perfectly. Um, and that is a very complex, tangled web of, you know, code from lots of different places generally. You know, you find an example of code and you kind of go, well, you know, that does what I, I needed to do. And I'll have that. And in the rush to get code out the, out the door, which is anyone who's ever been a developer will know you get these just really hardcore deadlines and you have to deliver on something because, you know, a bunch of other things depend on it. And that's what happens. You know, you're, you're focused on, on, unfortunately, quite often features, functionality, and then security when there's time. And um, I think one of the things that worries me about this, I mean, this scored a 10 on the CVSS. Like, it's 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 a whopper. Um, you know, it's, it's not a, uh, okay, that's interesting. This is like bad, bad stuff. Um, and luckily, in this case, it was fairly easy to remediate. Um, I actually came off a call and the person... Um, on the on the call had a brilliant analogy with this where she has just spent the entire weekend and last couple of days trying to figure out what it means for their organizations and and she described it as you know if you imagine making cakes and there's a bad egg and you make the cake and then you've got to try and figure out where exactly in the cake first of all the egg is and then where are all the other cakes (laughs) um but yeah, it's that complex trying to figure out where does this thing, like where does this impact? Um, you know, where are we affected? And then, okay, let's get to remediation as quick as possible. Um, and actually over the weekend, I, I weirdly, because of some stuff that was going on, spoke to quite a few organizations and this was the, the hot topic. And luckily for many of them, um, their sort of web perimeter security systems were picking up the traffic, This you know, the sort of, um, they call them IOCs or whatever for this activity. So they were able to kind of, uh, protect themselves in that instance, but um, yeah, an absolute whopper. I think the big thing here is um, it seems like I, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if it's Apache who developed the original part of it, or it's just a part of Apache Web Server. But for anyone who doesn't know web development or kind of web servers and hosting, Apache is probably the or used to be the most widely used kind of base web server, right? I, th- I think it probably still is, and yeah, yeah. The, the log4j is the library that's used. It's it's part of Java. Ah. So Apache Foundation developed that, and then you know, a it's bunch, open source or something. Yeah, yeah it's a, it is open source. Yeah, so and and there therefore people will run out and use it, and because I mean, let's be honest, open source tends to be pretty good and pretty secure because it's got lots of eyes on it. Um, but every that's now the and problem again, though, right? Because like now these technologies have been out for so old, so long. If you have so many eyes on it, eventually somebody's going to crack the code and find, hey, there's an exploit. Like it's but, just going to uh, say, what? yeah. Obfuscation, obfuscation is never security, I reckon. Like you want you want to, Close you want to yeah. stress this. It's like, um, you know, encryption algorithms, the best ones, you can publish the algorithm and it shouldn't matter that um, everyone knows how the algorithm works because it's intrinsically secure. I agree. I, I 100% agree. I don't think you should hide your code to, to any degree and I think open source is, is the right way to go, but I also think to your point earlier, you need to be careful on, especially when you're developing or you're coding or building something, you need to be very careful on who you call and then make sure that that's up to date as well. Because I think like one of the worst things I've seen over the years related, again, back to kind of web services, is probably WordPress websites, right? Like the amount of WordPress websites out there where it's not that you don't really develop if you make WordPress websites, but you just go and select a bunch of plugins, put it together, and then bang, you've got this fully functioning, awesome website, which is comparable with Meta's, Meta's Facebook.com or something. But as soon as those plugins go out of date and they go out of date all the time, yeah, suddenly you're opening yourself up to a world of pain. 
So maybe there also needs to be more of an accountability on, on the ongoing maintenance of this thing. But I also think in a weird way, we need to, stuff like this needs to come out and it needs to happen. It needs to be rated 10 out of 10 to, to your point earlier, Guy. Like it's a, it's a very serious thing. And I'm just surprised it took us so long to find out about it because it kind of reminds me of that Intel chip. Uh, it, was, it was that very interesting um, kind of vulnerability to chipsets. Uh, I think it was about a year ago now. And the problem was, or the, the scaring thing at the time was, it was like, oh, it basically affects everything with a chip in it. And we're looking around the room, I'm thinking everything here has a chip in it almost. It kind of feels like that almost all over again, where it's something which is that intrinsic and, and that related to everything, but it needs to be called out. I, I bet you so many people patched their Apache-based web servers who hadn't patched it in years. And, and that alone is probably going to help with a great reduction in, in breaches. And one of the other things that we that you can't do a, a year in review without looking at the, the ongoing impact of the pandemic and lockdowns and, and the fact that we've had multiple guests come on over the year, Gar, and talk to us about, you know, creating this cyber secure culture in a time where everybody is more stressed and more distracted and more burnt out and, and, you know, and more online than ever before. So all of those factors, how do you actually start to achieve, you know, that cyber safe and positive culture when you've got that environment that's, you know, upon us every day? So many people talked about this one. I think it's it's an incredibly important topic because um, it's the messiest one of them all. You know, you can go and spend money and set up security controls and it's technology. So it's fairly uh, generally fairly binary. You know, you've set it up well or you haven't. You know, there's a little bit of gray in the middle, but, um, you know, best practice tends to be about best practice. Uh, humans, we're, we're all over the place. Um, some days we've had coffee, some days we haven't. Um, we've got different personality types, introverts, extroverts, um, like all, all of the stuff that makes up the the glorious uh, world of corporate and uh, um, any kind of organization, you know, all of us coming together to, to work. Um, a bunch of people talked about it. Under Pritchett was probably the most recent and um, he actually did uh, what, what to me was a very interesting breakdown of, of something called Cotter's Framework for uh, Change. Um, and I'm a big fan of those. Anything that's step-by-step, step, I don't know. I just feel like that resonates with me because I'm maybe procedural. Let's say my, my brain in particular is, is wired. Um, but he he had a really good run through of that as a model to approach getting um, deep cultural change. One of the things that stood out in that conversation was, I, I think, and actually Phil Zongo, quite a while ago, I think Phil was one of the first people we had on, but he, I, I still remember because it stuck in my mind, he talked about having... Uh, setting realistic expectations and timeframes. So not, you know, falling into the trap of coming in as a CISO and saying, hey, within six months, we'll have everybody doing the right thing and you know, no bad behavior, but actually saying this is longer term. It's, it's behavior change. It's not education. It's not information transfer. It's actually deep-seated cultural organizational change. And that, that takes a long time. Um, and Andrew actually talked about this in terms of like years, five years, um, and I love that because that's that's the reality, and that means you're not going to get disappointed in the short term because you're actually you know you're looking five years down the line to something much more uh, significant. And Bruce McCulley talked about it as well. So he's he's from uh, Galactic Advisors. He's actually I think he was on last uh, week and specializing in MSPs, but had some very interesting stuff to talk about in terms of communication. And obviously that's a very critical part of this also. Um, Jay Hira. Uh, who uh, yeah, he, he's been on uh, and, and, and sort of talked about this. I, I suppose the point is I could probably throw a dart at uh, the a printout of the people who've been on as interview guests and 
pretty much guarantee that we would have talked about the the cultural or the human side of cybersecurity in any episode. One of the things I think we've probably struggled with in security over the years is measuring success to a degree, right? Like mm-hmm. what does success look like? It's not getting hacked, not getting breached. And then we used to always hear about the companies which you know did really well in that aspect. Suddenly when it comes to budget time next year, oh, do we really need that? Oh, we haven't been breached for a while. It's okay. We're going to cut that from the budget. So one thing I think I struggle with, at least in my head, is how does somebody come to a business, say as a CISO, say, okay, how do they actually set their goals? Like, what, what is achievable? What are we going to look like? And, and maybe to your point, Garrett, is, is more about continuing the narrative and making sure that over time culture changes, because I think that's a very good point. Like, even if you come in tomorrow, fix everything, you're not immune from the risk of cybersecurity. You're not immune from the risk of breach. That's going to affect everyone. It's going to only, only grow in the future. So I'm not sure if any of the guests spoke about goals or kind of expectation setting. I think you kind of almost said it there. But, yeah, can you hear about any insights you've had with the, um, the guests around that? Yeah, so Bruce McCulley did talk about this, and, and you're spot on, Brad. I reckon that's one of the more tricky things to establish. And not, I don't think it's controversial, but there's definitely a discussion in you know in the cybersecurity leadership world about what's meaningful um, as a way to kind of report progress to a board and to get budget. So you probably want to be doing those two things. Um, if there's no progress, you're probably going to be looking at your personal budget in the, short, in the shorter yeah. term in a way that you don't want to. Um, but you know, a board will want to see uh, what's what's meaningful to them, and um, so many people have talked about this uh, over the last couple of years. It's great to be actually able to say that about the pod for the last couple of years. Um, that you know, one of the things you want to do is move away from. I'm going to say it like nonsense metrics. No one cares about you know the number of emails blocked or the number of malware things blocked. They care about things that are actually meaningful to the business. And um, one of the the things um, that we're starting to see more of Mark O'Hare, who's our uh, CISO um, in this kind of region, and, and myself actually been talking about this a fair bit, and actually so has Dan, uh, but the, the view of risk at an enterprise level is, is starting to become more formalized and almost like an academic breakdown using models like FAIR, um, which starts to take some of the, um, I suppose some of the, not not. I mean, yeah, I suppose moving away from humans, putting their finger in there and and saying, well, I think it's kind of like here, you know, in terms of risk, but actually being much more mechanical about how you break down risk into a very detailed level and then uh, parlay that into, well, is that acceptable or not? And then, okay, if it's not, we need the money to fix it. Um, The human side of things, I think that's where the, the, the rubber leaves the road because how do you measure humans? I mean, we do things like um, fish campaigns, incredibly useful at a point in time for one behavior. Um, And yes, you could probably say that that's a proxy for all the other security behaviors that make up good cybersecurity culture, Um, passwords, not leaving your laptop open, um, you know, not talking about business in the cafe, et cetera, et cetera. But that one to me, like I've heard people talk about it, but I've never heard anything where I'm like, that's the answer. There we go. Like we've, we've found our way. Um, And I also think we mistake knowledge for things like engagements, which is a huge problem because um, Dan, for example, might know that he, uh, what's a good example, might, you know, shouldn't leave his laptop in a cafe and go to buy him the coffee. But if Dan doesn't care, and I know you do, Dan, so like probably a terrible example, but that's okay. Get a call from our site, Dan. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Mark is already, uh, he's already writing the email. Phone's um, ringing right now. <laughs> but, um, but if you if you're not if you don't care if you're not engaged then that's all for naught. I mean, having the information means nothing if you're not actually as a human being doing the right thing in the moment. 
how do you, yeah. So I think that's the thing we need to focus on is that cultural side of things, engagement. And again, it's 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 fine in like you say, even under a simulation, like a fishing attempt or something like that. But the social engineering side changes it again, and it's a bit like we spoke about with the boards and executives practicing for a ransomware. Like, how do people sort of practice under stress for social engineering? And Jenny Radcliffe, the human hacker, um, you know, provides um, you know insightful and, and frightening, um, uh, I guess, narrative around that as well. She, she really did. Uh, yeah, I think I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was something along the lines of she just wants to make it about yeah, the human because she knows she can beat them pretty much. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so many stories where you you hear her walking through the the process of getting through organizations that you would assume um, the people have been trained and would have been trained to do the right thing to check badges, but because we're all humans, we all have those same hot buttons, those same things that somebody is as clever as Jenny is able to push and manipulate people. It's I, I you know, when I, funny when I, I think about Jenny Radcliffe, first of all, I absolutely love the conversations and um, a brilliant, just an amazing storyteller. Just so, 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 so good. Um, and, uh, and then I think of her like almost like a David Blaine or a David Copperfield, like it's, it's magician <laughs> stuff, you know, it's that level. Yeah, social engineering and red teaming. Do more of it, guys. Like if you've got a consultant, a third party, I think that stuff is usually the, it can be some of the most impactful things. And it might sound a little bit evil, but if you get somebody like a Jenny to walk into your office, fuller CISA, a CISA even, or, you know, fuller C-level, and they can start to understand how real this threat can be, I think something like that can be very meaningful because unfortunately, a lot of the times this stuff is just, it's not visible, right? But it, as soon as you have that physical presence, Maybe that helps change the conversation a bit. But um, I would do more than just phishing tests. Phishing tests, I've been doing them, you know, for four or five years now. I think we need to make sure we start doing some of this more exciting stuff as well. And and that's sort of definitely, I mean, we do like hear about pen testing at a tech level and all that. But um, yeah, the, the the thing I loved about Jenny Radcliffe's episode was that you could, you could see the facial expression of the overly confident execs and boards as she kind of handed them their password or something <laughs> that they assumed that she could never get to. Like that's, I, I wish there was a, yeah, there was a photo, a collection of photos somewhere of those faces. Indeed. And uh, I think uh, taking it back from the, the very individual human level and something that we discussed earlier around sort of governments and where, where things are at and the notion, Gar, that we're in a cyber cold war, right? And then that, you know, that times have changed. Um, what can you tell us about this new battleground of cyber for nations seeking to influence their rivals? Actually, uh, the perfect guest for that one, Do uh, Dr. Chase Cunningham, um, who was just a very, very cool guy in terms of like knowledge, but actually just as a human being, um, just a lovely, lovely guy to talk to. Um, you know, ex-Navy uh, uh, had spent time with a bunch of the three-letter acronym agencies in the US. So, you know, proper real deal and also author of a, a couple of books as well. So um, somebody who is yeah like i say from a cyber perspective uh, the real deal but we got to talking about um yeah cyber warfare and uh and, and as uh, uh, dmitry alperovich also talked about this i think we're going to end up talking about this more and more actually and um, because that really is where the battleground has moved to and i think we're all psychologically still wired to think about um f-35s and submarines and people in fatigues running across um arid landscapes and you know kind of shooting at each other but actually, this is all shifted. And in the background, there's a huge amount of um, 
I suppose, interstate uh, shenanigans um, happening at a, a cyber uh, level. And that, you know, that that's stuff as overt as uh, attempted attacks on see, a critical national infrastructure. Um, I've spoken to government agencies here who describe constantly seeing probing uh, from our, some friends of ours um, who are not a million miles away. And um, I think that's it, right? That's the world we live in more and more and more. And there there was a comment made actually on a call this morning. I was on, um, oh, sorry, it was last night actually. And, and they described how there, there's a couple of nations that are kind of swagging or swagging around like, um, you know, angry drunks ready to fight. And, you know, and we all know who those those folks are. Um, but it is really shifted to to there. And um, one of the things that um, Dr. Chase Cunningham had said that I, I've sort of latched onto is that he, he sort of described how if you're firing live rounds in today's day and age, you're, you've already lost. You know, that's so much of this stuff has shifted uh, to, to cyber, whether that's direct attacks, like I say, on CNI, but also things like influence attacks, which... Uh, we saw out of the US where, you know, you see direct um, direct evidence now of uh, uh, influencing elections. And that, that is huge. And it's incredibly hard to deal with because it's so, it's so kind of surreptitious and in the background. Mm. So like there is no threat intel feed you can subscribe to that's going to tell you, hey, our elections are currently being compromised because um, a particular nation is paying for advertising or has a, an army of bots that is doing what um, uh, Chase calls, you know, influence attacks. Um, and I find those particularly like kind of nefarious because I think half the time we won't even know that they're happening or we might suspect, but it's really like, who do you point at? I think there in terms of political influence as well, like one thing I've observed is, you know, whilst, you know, I think America has been the, the use case we've talked about or, you know, the, the elections over there. But if we look at countries like, India, Israel, Armenia, Ethiopia, like in a lot of these, more, I guess, more developing countries to a degree, a lot of individuals, they don't have a computer. They might have a phone and they might only have WhatsApp or Facebook on their phone. Like that's their one key way of connecting to the world really or, or in terms of media information. And there's been a lot of evidence to suggest that, I believe in some instances, like, um, um, you know, political groups going up to like Facebook's offices or WhatsApp offices and demanding they delete or remove content because it's anti-government or whatever it may be. And that concept's really frightening, but also very unpoliced, I think, in the developing world and in other countries outside of like, you know, Australia and America. Um, also, just quickly on the on the concept of, I guess, combat fatigues and thinking about kind of the interlay of, 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 of warfare and cybersecurity if we look at traditional and conventional warfare, there's, there's a big shift at the moment um, towards new night vision technology. And that's because I think 20, 30 years ago, America and all of us were really advanced with night vision technology. And that's why we did all our night raids, I guess. But over the years, night vision technology has definitely gotten a lot smaller. And now in Afghanistan, as an example, I think they've got a, a bunch of night vision. But anyway, so the American government are working towards build, um, upgrading all their kit. And it's really cool. But basically, they can see a lot further. They've got this really heavy thing they put on their head and it connects to all of the other troops in their squad as well. And they can get like a heads up display and even like mark targets with their eyes or something. And then another person can see it. What I'm thinking is that what happens if I'm sitting there with a laptop and I hack into all these guys helmets and then suddenly they're all blind or whatever it may be um but just yeah fascinating in terms of i guess the amount of iot utilization and it sounds like a video game to me to be honest i was gonna say is there mods for augmented reality <laughs> where you could have like pixelated people or uh, well, you can't, characters it's doable now like yeah on the topic of vr you just got to spend a lot of money i think it's like yeah basically a lot of money you could do it i think somebody set up one the other day where they 
it was like a horror game or something, but if you got did a certain thing, it like put water on you or whatever it was. So like 4D or if you will. But I mean, yeah, there's another idea, right? As we start to move into the, the realms of VR and stuff and, and that more kind of interconnection, what are the cybersecurity risks there as well? Well, we've spoken a lot about, I guess, the review of the year in, in cybersecurity. Sometimes, you know, it can be a bit scary and a bit negative, but one of the positives coming out of, of the year is, is that we've started to see the good guys fight back a bit. Um, we saw Emotet being severely disrupted um, by Europol earlier in the year. Um, we've seen the Revil gang vanish um, from existence for now. Um, what can we say about, you know, the success of sort of, the, I guess, the law enforcement side coming in to actually stop the cyber crimes. It, it sort of feels like the war on drugs, doesn't it? Um, where how long has that gone on and how successful has that been? Um, a long time and not very is probably the answers to both of those questions. And um, I, uh, like unless fundamentally some stuff changes in the world. I mean, I really don't see how cyber crime goes away. It's, I mean, crime has been with humanity as long as humanity has been around because we're now a technological society or developing towards that. Those two things are intrinsically linked and you're, you're just going to see some version of cyber crime continue. And, you know, we've dealt with ransomware. We've dealt with BC. There will be things like there will be new things that we've no one's ever thought of and, and one day will happen and, and we'll all Kind of think, oh wow, that's that's kind of scary, and that's that's crazy. Um, so, like my two senses, unless we have you know universal basic income around the world and create some kind of utopic society, like how how does this go away? Um, we won't we won't see it from any level of law enforcement. We won't see it from um, technology. There is no panacea. But I think what we can do, and we have to fight the fight. Like that's the thing. So it's not like we can go. Well, yeah, it's just going to keep on going. So let's let's not bother. Um, what we will see, I suspect, more of is is better technology and better practices. The I think the, it's fair to say cybersecurity has absolutely elevated in the zeitgeist over the last eighteen months. It's just it feels different to me in a very very meaningful way. Um, and I think with that, you'll see better um, budgeting for cybersecurity, more attention being paid to it. It'll become much more um, formalized or codified as a you know a part of a business in much the same way as we've you know just generally generally done this um, risk analysis in, in a business. Um, but you know when I think about somebody sitting in a, a country and or, or jurisdiction where there's no opportunity to make money, but you've got access to a laptop and the internet, and that's incredibly compelling. To get the nail on the head there, guy. like, you're right, I think, comparing it to the war on drugs, like, uh, if people are desperate, if, if they need money, like, we've, we've seen reports of traditional kind of, I guess, gangs who would do, you know, breaking and enterings, um, hold-ups, move towards doing fraud because the jail time's less and it's a much safer job. <laughs> um, so I think you're 100% right. It comes back down to people, right? Like, as long as people are need money unless we can solve that problem, which I don't think anyone's been able to solve things like world hunger or, or ever will. We're going to have to live with it and we, we're going to have to learn to be resilient. So uh, we'll finish off with a look forward. What is 2022 going to bring us from a from a cyber perspective? Gar, kick things off for us. Yeah, these are these are always so um, so interesting when you kind of think about what's going to happen because um, putting a time frame on it is probably the, the hard part, but... Um, these are things that I suspect we're going to have to think about. Um, the first one, 
has been talked about quite a lot over the, not recently. Uh, it's gone on for quite some time, but you know, the idea of deep fakes actually something that we we um, talked about with Dr. Chase Cunningham uh, at length as, as well. Uh, but the, you know, it's been covered in in the media, um, and there's been two kind of relatively sizable incidents where deep fakes have resulted in uh, organizations being uh, compromised. So you know, BEC, um, and I think. You know, everyone on this call would know like deepfakes is the idea that you can use um, ML to analyze a big data set of somebody's voice, for example, um, and then create a machine version of that. So, you know, it's indistinguishable. And when, you know, Dan McDermott calls up and says, hey, Gar, you know, do, do X, Y, Z. And I kind of, oh, that's Dan. I know Dan's voice. And um, what we've got to the point of is real-time deepfakes. So if you think about, you know, I'm talking to you now and I'm using, you know, my normal Irish accents and saying the words in English, but, you know, the good use of this technology is that I could quite easily using, um, uh, you know, real-time translation be talking in Mandarin mm. in a female's voice and that's fine. Um, but what you can actually start to do is then what, what does that voice sound like? And in real time, as I'm having a conversation with you on the phone, I actually sound like the executive that's going to authorize a, a, a change of some sort. Many organizations, you know, we talk about people process technology. Many organization builds, uh, organizations build their protocols for authorization or checks based on a phone call because we all assume that as human beings, we're going to know what Brad sounds like. We're going to know what Daniel sounds like. But actually, we're getting to the point where those protocols are, and processes are, are going to start breaking because it will become very easy to make a phone call that sounds like somebody else. And yes, you could say, well, the phone call has to be coming inbound, blah, blah, blah. Like, but here we are, we're back to social engineering and ways where you can easily sort of manipulate a situation so that that isn't the case. Now, if you think about it, when you talk to your bank, how often do you hear some version of, you know, we're going to record your voice for you know authentication. I mean, that's just starting to feel like a really bad move to me these days. And I think I'm starting to feel more and more funny about biometrics in general. Um, so, sorry, I'm going off track here. So prediction and um, nobody, please nobody check in in 2022 if this was true or not. <laughs> check in, come back guys, please. I'm going to say that we're going to have to start evaluating that use of uh, protocols or processes at a human level to start thinking about what it means when we when we get phone calls that are deep fake real time uh, impersonations. And then let's start thinking about what it means when video becomes in a you know a doable thing. I think at the moment it's probably pushing available processing power, but it, we will get there. There will be a point where, um, I, I you know we like get far from the podcast and you can just pay somebody to type a script and then say some stuff and no one's going to know the difference. Right? We will get there eventually. Um, so well, I did feel as though you you were in deep fake mode when you called me Daniel. So that was, sorry, that yeah, sort of yeah. was a giveaway. There, I thought. <laughs> Has deep fake technology really gotten that far? Because I remember seeing some, I don't know if it was Tom Cruise or who it was, but there's phenomenal ones, uh, deep fakes made by like an ex-Hollywood CG artist. And I think to do it to like that level, like it did require a lot of pre-processing and, and kind of rendering and stuff. But yeah, like it, are we that close? For video, I'd say we're a little ways away. Like I don't, I don't think that's in the short term and that does take a, a bit of time to, to make convincing. Um, and get rid of glitches like that's the thing it's done by machine so every now and again it'll glitch out uh, but the voice stuff uh, that that is just intrinsically easier you know it's just it's sound versus a you know the complexity of an image is it's a completely completely different thing and requires different levels of processing um so yeah it feels like we're we're not a million miles away from there and and that 
if I could, if I'm if I'm some runway here because it kind of leads perfectly into like my next prediction, which is we're going to see huge excitement and adoption of stuff like passwordless authentication. And I'm sorry. Yeah, and that's the reaction, and and so do I, right? I mean, I think passwords are they're awful, um, unless you're using a password manager, and then I'm actually they're pretty, still awful. Fine with it. I've got like hundreds yeah. now. It's it's got to the point where like it's it's easy. Don't get me wrong, and I've got it set up so it's all Face ID, one click, but. So many passwords. And then not all the forms and web forms and websites actually work with the password manager, like most of them do, but they don't. And then ah, it's just a bit of a mess. So so you're clear, clearly an advocate for passwordless authentication, which I think is going to be yeah. good. The the issue that I would have then is when it comes to the the thing that's going to replace the password, quite often that's kind of an inherence factor or a thing you are, right? So your iris mm. or your face or your fingerprints, your voice. And we need to start thinking about what it means if um if those things can be compromised in some way, and there's been academic proofs where you can see things like master fingerprints um, uh, based on ML kind of analysis of the very small sort of surface area that is used to you know check a fingerprint, you don't get to change your fingerprint or your face. So I think that needs to be a, a conversation. And then my last one is, you know, and we've seen a little bit of this, but you know, Colonial where the impact was was pretty significant and the panic that ensued around um, availability of oil and petrol and stuff. I think we're going to see some big things this year and and maybe more in, in nations uh, where the security forces aren't as mature as, as some of the, the um, more developed nations and, and, and maybe some severe impacts to, uh, to human beings and their ability to, to kind of go about their day-to-day lives in a way that we haven't really seen before, like true kind of, panic stations um we've had a little taste of that with the covid and and how everybody went and bought a you know ton of toilet paper um there's no reason whatsoever that a you know significant cybersecurity impact um adage could impact a, a country in a way that causes the same panic indeed I guess I have two quick ones. Uh, one is we're heading into a federal election and I think cyber will be a key platform for for the election and I think that there needs to be a reimagining of how government supports small business um, to become that raise that cyber health and cyber hygiene that they have across the board, um, not predicting what the answer is but predicting that something needs to be done and not just call it out as, as a challenge and, and the soft underbelly of cyber being SMB that's nice, but what is the actual response to that going to be um, is one. And the second one that is, is a continuing trend, I think, is around the skills shortage and diversity in cyber overall mm. and what that means for everything. And, you know, we had a, a recent episode hosted by Amy Holden um, around, you know, getting more females into into cyber and what that means and having great guests on board. And I think that that diversity and that inclusion um, and helping having that to help address the skills shortage as well as all the training and all those sort of things that will happen, um, both of those I think are, are going to be big things for 2022. I'll do a quick one just because I don't want to have time for one, but um, IOTs, and I think I might have even said this last year, but IOTs for me are just the most dangerous thing in the world and I'm, I'm looking at all these little COVID check-in device things that people set up at the start of the pandemic, and I'm thinking, how many of you have updated on the day you installed them? Well, terrific. I think on that note, um, that brings this week's episode and this year's series to a close. So firstly, a huge thanks to Brad and Gar. I appreciate your insights as always. I'd also like to thank our incredible guests who are extremely generous with their time, and we couldn't deliver the value of the show without you. 
Also, I want to give a big shout out to our backroom crew who make the magic happen. Dave and Matt from Green Hat, who are magicians in producing the show, um, and Mel from Mimecast, who helps us generate interest and grow our audience. Which leads me to the final thank you for the year, and that is to you, our amazing loyal listeners. Um, We do this for you and appreciate you spending time with us each week. We'll return in February for Season 5. Until then, thanks for listening. Have a wonderful Christmas and holiday period, and always stay safe.